Hello everyone, this is Inspiring African Travel. I'm James and with my wife Julia and our great friend Stuart, we aim to take you on a journey to meet really inspiring people involved in tourism right across Africa. Stories of female empowerment, local citizens who've made it in tourism, stories of conservation, and just take you on a journey to the most amazing destinations in Africa that we know and that we love. If you love Africa and her people and the places and the wilderness, we're sure you're going to really enjoy this podcast. Welcome to our second series, Local Heroes in Tourism in Africa. We've got really wonderful people sharing inspiring stories of positive change through tourism, people coming from humble backgrounds to becoming successful professionals, and people sharing their life's dedication to responsible travel in Africa. Wonderful people, and we really hope you enjoy this second series. Welcome to episode two, everyone, and we're trying something different. We've interviewed uh, two what can only be described as remarkable people and we actually have a translation going on as well so all sorts happening and I've just I really had an amazing talk with these two gentlemen um, really humbling experience and so I thought I'd come outside and do the introduction straight away it's a beautiful hot summer's afternoon we've had a bit of rain in Botswana it's just a most magical time of the year here so to give you a little bit of background, John Carter was born into a nomadic community in the Okavango Delta, which is still today one of Africa's most remarkable wildlife areas. When his family were moved down to a town a few hundred kilometers away, uh, they relocated to start a new life. Uh, John supported them, uh, but he actually remained behind um, to build to help build what was one of the country's most established safari properties. It's called Camp Okavango. This was in 1980 and in 2019, around 40 years, after 40 years of guiding international visitors through this remarkable place, John retired um, from that very same camp. So he's probably one of Botswana's longest serving members of staff in the safari sector. We'll be joined by his nephew, MC Udemetsi, who, after losing his father at quite a young age, he's always looked up to John as his, as his father, father figure. MC started in tourism as a waiter. Um, he went on to guiding management. And today he's the operations director for Chobi Holdings, which owns and operates 13 high-end safari camps right around the region. So it's safe to say he's um, made a significant impact um, and the successful career of his life. In order to take you on this journey, we asked MC to translate for his uncle and we'll take a journey right through his early days, what it was like and how we got to where we are today. Two amazing people, two absolute local heroes in tourism that just really epitomizes what this series is all about. So. Here we go with part one. We hope you enjoy it and catch you later. So to be honest, I've been looking forward to this interview for 
many, many months now. Actually, when we first started this idea of Inspiring African Travel podcast, the first discussion was this would be one of the interviews that we definitely wanted to do. So it's a great privilege to welcome Mr. John Carter in the house, the studio, yes. um, <laughs> with all my high-tech equipment over here. <laughs> As you can see, this yeah. is the microphone and the camera is my phone sitting over there. His nephew, uh, MC, uh, full name Limpudice Udumetsi. Um, most people, that doesn't really roll off the tongue. So we, uh, we know him as MC and MC is John's nephew. I want to set the scene because that is the best way for us to really put everything in, into perspective. So John, I want you to go back into your mind now for this interview and go back into when you were a young boy uh, in the Okavango because this is where our interview is going to start and then we're going to progress later on. It's the late 1970s. You live in a small settlement in the Okavango Delta on an island called Naraha Island. In those days, tourism as we know it today, it didn't really exist. There were one or two uh, luxury camps. There was some intrepid hunters which came from parts of America and Europe. But tourism as we know it today, it, it didn't really exist. Today still, the Okavango Delta is one of the world's most untouched wilderness areas. Your community that was living on Naraka Island um, was one of many kind of nomadic settlements around the Okavango Delta where people you lived off the land, you didn't have shops, you didn't have schools, you didn't have hospitals. In the late 70s, this American lady from Texas started to arrive. Her name was Jessie Neal and she fell in love with Botswana and over time she managed to persuade the Tawana Land Board um, and the local authorities that she could build a little luxury safari camp on Ngaraka Island where you and your family were living. 40 years or more later, you are celebrating your last year of work after dedicating your life and your entire working career to that very same camp that they built when you were a young boy on this island. Take us back to the 1970s. What was going through your mind when you saw this lady come here and their colleagues and they started building this camp and explaining to you what was happening. What was your immediate reaction and of course your family? What were you thinking? Okay, um, they were very grateful when they saw Jesse coming in to look for a place to build a lodge. And then she pretty much came with a heli and stopped on the side and saw this guy from the Makoros and says, hey, you know what, I'm looking for a spot to build, but I want a place where it never gets flooded during the rainy seasons or during the high floods. And then they picked up uh, Naraha Island. Naraha Island was part of the islands where they were doing gatherings of wild fruits all the way to Lopez. So the impression was absolutely great because he says, wow, this lady is going to give us, is going to give us a job. So uh, it was quite quite positive, and they were welcoming. But uh, like as he says, the that island was more within the operating range. 
So, John and the family were not actually living on Marakha Island. They were, well, they were based in Muji was the main island. Yeah. And then Naraha Island, it depends on if they've taken an animal or they're going to collect foods there. Oh, okay. They will come and move there. Remember they were nomadic. They will yeah. live there for a month to feast on a hippo, for example. And then they will move down to another island. But the base was Muji because it's more higher mm-hmm. and bigger. Okay. And bigger island for, for the okay. entire community. Yeah. Awesome. So when I, if I say that the... Um, the family that were living there, moving around the area, they were literally living off the land, like harvesting fruits, um, whatever, meat, fish. Um, that's pretty much like there was no trips to mound or anything to go and collect anything. What was the plan? Mm. The interesting thing is, they don't, the family did not originate in the Naraha Island. The origin of them was at the bottom end of Chief's Island. Um, well, Chief's Island, which is now well known, um, it's part of the Muremi game reserve. When Chief Muremi came in, uh, he spoke to the, the ethnic groups within the Chief's Island because he was a chief. They told him, okay, you can move a little bit upper, which is now the current Mombo. Mm-hmm. We will stay at the bottom of Chief's Island. And the bottom of Chief's Island, it's full of small little islands. So because they were nomadic and they were living off the land, uh, they were uh, mainly collecting wild fruit. They were hunters and gatherers. Uh, they were also the main activities, fishing. Mm-hmm. So they ended up settled in Muji Island. And Muji is incorporated, if you look at it, with all the Naraha Island and the islands within where Tempo Kovango finally got built. So, so, so basically, that's 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 the migratory route all the way from there to uh, Naraha, where Tempo Kovango, the current Tempo Kovango is. And then later, obviously, we'll touch about how do they end up in Tumal. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Distance-wise, between Naraha and the Tempo Kovango area and Chief's Island, or the bottom end of Chief's Island, roughly, if you fly, how far is it? Uh, well, as, from airplane point of view, I think we're looking at a 15 minutes flight, yeah. so mm. we're looking at maybe 50 to 60 kilometers. Okay, but so only, two days by Makoro? Yeah, from Makoro, two days. No, one day. One day. Mm. Yeah. So Makoro, they were doing it one day, but also you have to remember they take shortcuts going yeah. there, because you avoid, when you do Makoro, you avoid the main rivers. Yeah. The main channels, the mm. deeper part, because that's where the crocs and the hippos, hippos are. Yeah, yeah. So you take floodplains and shortcuts and, and go down. Okay. Yeah. Roughly, uh, at the time when you were moving around that area, how big was your community, like in your greater family? Um, how many were you? About 50. 50? Yeah, 50 people. Okay. Mm. And Chief Moremi started establishing that uh, game reserve, was it early 60s? In the early 60s. I know so it was proclaimed in 1968, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So already you, were, you and your family were familiar with the fact that they were creating protected areas of lands and moving certain communities to other areas so that they could allow this land to be protected. Do you remember that or was your family aware of that? 
Muremi kana batu ba bata ko ora ke ne muremi hata ka tsona what is telling it's 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 quite interesting because it seems like when muremi came there way back they came with their own cattle in the middle of that area they in the middle of their chief's island mm. in that area they tried to be do some agriculture so when they came down because remember africa was broken down in small ethnic uh, conflict. So even the internal chiefs, because Muremi originated from Tsuruwe, from the Bangwatu, so he was running away mm. from his brother, um, and then he ended up hiding deep up in the top of the Okavanga Delta. That's way back in the 40s during the time of the Shaka Zulus and mm-hmm. all the Mizilkazis when everybody was fighting in Southern mm. Africa. So as they go, they will keep capturing cattle and going down. So the cattle and horses that they had there, he didn't see them because he was obviously born after time, but he heard about it, they had it, they, they never survived because of Sissy fly. Ah, yes. Yeah. Sleeping so, sickness. Sleeping sickness. And they said that fly that finally got eradicated. Muremi decided, okay, we're going to start setting this thing for our future generation. So the ethnic groups that were living around uh, Mombo area in the bottom end, they started moving downwards, downstreams, uh, were obviously based on food source. While Muremi is busy settling himself there in making sure that as much as we're hunting, we must just hunt knowing that we want to keep this for the younger generation, which is why we're ending up with Mombo as one of the most pristine area in the Delta. It was well thought way back. Mm-hmm. So the message did get across. It didn't come as direct as today as it's an environmental message. It probably came in a different way that, okay, we're going to leave this. There's more under animals down there. Yeah. So we're going to leave only a few people here, which is the real which is the real people, but the rest of you guys just find some little islands and spread down and make yourself comfortable. There's enough animals and enough food. Okay. Because being hunting and gathering, remember they were not using automatic rifles. No, sure. Automatic weapons. So they were using snares, little snares that they were put in, uh, fishing with nets, um, and all other different techniques that they were using, and then mainly collecting fruits depending on different seasons. Yeah. Yeah. But nothing they were nothing was for sale. It was all for their no, own. No, it was purpose. all subsistence. Yeah. Nothing was commercial. It yeah. was mainly subsistence for each family that were moving around. Okay. Yeah. So John will about 20, about 35. Yes, he yeah. says he was old, maybe he reckons mm. between 20 and 35, somebody. He yeah. was older to be Between 20 and 35. Yeah. <laughs> hey. John can't, can't remember <laughs> when he was born. 
He can't okay. remember when, but he remembers because he could navigate the channels. Sure, sure, sure. And, uh, remember he and it's also a responsible job. Yeah, you have to yeah. take all the kids yeah. backwards and forwards. Yeah, so he was doing all of that stuff and also avoiding the main channel, okay. the danger, because the whole responsibility is now on you. Sure. And remember, hippos hated Mokoros. Uh, yeah. Because these guys were hunting hippos with the Mokoros. Yeah. That's why it hated the, uh-huh. the, the Mokoros. So he, <coughs> he kept going back, but then he goes to work. Obviously, yeah. it was unpaid days to Jesse Neal. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my man trip has started. Yeah. And so then, back a step now. So mm-hmm. at this point, when all of this is happening mm-hmm. and the rest of your family are relocating mm-hmm. to Mount to go to school and to settle here, mm-hmm. you've been employed by Camp Okovango mm-hmm. to help build and set up and establish the camp, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. So they also agreed with government that um, they would like their children to go to school mm. because they realize that's going to be the future of everything. Mm. So, and in that obviously goes through to the employer, which is Jesse Neal. So Jesse could allow him to do those trips and it was paid for. Mm. So he'll do the trip, come down to Maan, and then goes back and he continues with his job. Okay. What yeah. we, what was your job? Me? Yeah. The groundsman. Groundsman. I'm groundsman. I'm starting for groundsman. Okay, John was the head of the groundsman. So the groundsman means looking after, cleaning, tidying up the camp, mm-hmm. like uh, some other companies call it a camp hand. Cleaning, raking the leaves. Also, he was part of the crew, the head guy who was creating channels, the existing channels that we're operating in now oh. to take the guest out on activities. And then they also put up an airstrip. So you know that that's a, an island. You can't even get anything in there. Even us, we're battling now to put in anything in that island. So their job was to use the slashes with their hands and cut a 1.2 kilometer uh, airstrip. And it's 18 meters wide. So the length is 1.2 k's. Just cutting with the slashes. So these Muslimanis that use the tractors mm, now. Now they're using they're tractors. They got tractors. Yeah. So, and also to to harden the surface, uh, to compact the surface, they were filling up the 200 liter drums with water. Mm. And then they rolled the drums, 1.2 kilometer, mm. pushing it pushing. all the way, and roll it back, roll it out, roll it back, so that Jesse Neal could land the airplane mm. and the customers can come in by uh-huh. air. At this, at this point... Um, because you didn't go to school, how, how was your English or communicating with the boss? And how did you, nego- yeah, how did you English, ne- negotiate with Jesse and everything? Because they've never put a foot in the, any classroom or school door. Uh, so they picked up English from working with their guests and obviously working with Jesse. And I think there were one or two other people who could speak and translate by then. Okay. So by then, uh, we had one or two people who could translate. But most of the English that they picked up for their guests to share the experience, they were on their own. They mm. just have to figure it out and work with mm. the guests. Obviously, guests also have to figure out what they're trying to say, where they don't understand, and then they'll have to ask yeah. more so that they could elaborate to be able to share their knowledge okay mm. and were you happy like i mean mm. so from you've gone from one moment where you were you know living for yourself and supporting your own family to all of a sudden pushing 50 liter drums of water over an airstrip and slashing an airstrip for one kilometer and mokoring <laughs> all the way down to mount take your 
family to school and back and working for this Jesse, like, were you enjoying it? Was it, or was it like, hey, what am I doing? ดิไอแลนด์ดาร์ดิไอแลนด์ดาร์ในดิไอแลนด์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร์ดาร
and then uh, to be a guide. Mm. And now the tips also started mm, to come mm, in. Yes. Started to get tips um, from from customers mm. if they were happy with his job. Yeah. Uh, so life started to get better, and he set his mind: this is where I'm gonna die. Cool. I'm gonna die in this company. Yeah, they're looking after me. They're looking whatever. after me. Yeah. Things My have family's changed. happy. There's a different structure now. It's more improved. Mm-hmm. Because if we remember, well, Jesse was running as a solo. Mm-hmm. Now there's a company. Mm-hmm. There's always a huge difference when you... Sure. Yeah. Okay. So so that's that's up until when he... Awesome. Yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, I just want to say again, um, you know, uh, congratulations on your career and your dedication and your legacy that you've left uh, with the company and also the legacy that you've left with your family um, contributing to not just this company but actually uplifting all people in Botswana through um, role models such as your nephew. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Please, if you've got any questions or feedback, or if you know somebody that would be really good for the podcast, do get in touch with us. You can reach us on inspiringafricantravel.com. Otherwise, reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We are all over there. And we also have a YouTube channel, so please check that out and, and subscribe as well. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>